You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. So we are going to move around to a couple of different different texts of Scripture, even though we're, we're basing our study on Isaiah 59 today. I'm guessing that's probably a chapter that a lot of us haven't read in a long time. And maybe some of you would say, I've never read or heard read Isaiah 59. That's good. That's a good thing for us. Because Isaiah 59, even though it was written 700 years before Christ, is funneling us right to the things that we focus, uh, and rightly so, focus so much attention on this time of year. So what I'd like you to do first is go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is, is that record uh, written to a guy named Theophilus, lover of God. It, it was an actual letter that Luke the physician wrote to a man. And uh, we here believe, and, and I think biblical orthodoxy would say, Luke was moved along by the Holy Spirit. So this is why it's in the Bible. It's part of the scripture. Luke is writing this account, and he takes a little bit different tack than Matthew and Mark, and of course different than John. Luke is starting with the announcement to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and then the announcement from the angel to Mary, and the the visitation to Joseph, and, and the birth of Jesus, and we'll get to that as we go through this. But we're going to look on this first Sunday, a little bit later in Luke chapter 2, specifically verse 25, After the Lord Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph, because of the requirements, because they were Torah observant, they were observant Jews, they they obeyed the scriptures, they went to the feasts, and because they had a baby, they were required to bring that baby. Because he was a male baby in particular, there were some special laws that God had given for the birth of male children. There were were purification rites, there was a, a buying back of a firstborn son, There were a lot of things that had to be handled in the temple. So Joseph and Mary went to the temple with the baby, and they met a couple people. The first one is a man named Simeon. And so from Luke chapter 2, I'm going to start reading just a few verses, starting at verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Look at this. I want you to catch this phrase if you have a Bible open in front of you. This is, this is very important to what we're talking about now. Looking for the consolation of Israel. He'd been looking for something. He knew it was there, but he hadn't seen it. He was like a man in the dark. He knows there's something out there. He's waiting for hope. He's waiting for the light in the darkness. And that's why Luke tells his friend Theophilus, this is what happened this is how, how the, the birth of Jesus was celebrated in a stable. This is how the people in Jerusalem came into physical contact with the incarnate Son of God. And so Luke says, just this guy, his name was Simeon. He was righteous, he was devout, and what a description. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
And it had been, we're at verse 26 of Luke chapter 2, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, and before we get to, to the message of Simeon, we have newborn babies around here, and if you don't have one, a lot of you have had a newborn baby, and when, when you first have that child, uh, if you've ever had somebody come up and just take that child from your hands, it's not one of those things that you typically are comfortable with. So we had children hauled away and kissed all over the face by people we didn't really know. Mary and Joseph came into the temple, and this old guy, came up. We don't we know the story. Joseph and Mary didn't know the story, but you know they had seen enough strange things happen up to this point. Maybe it didn't come as a surprise and maybe they thought that was a safe place. Maybe they even knew of Simeon. All we know is what Luke tells us. Moved along by the Holy Spirit in this account. He took him into his arms and blessed God and said, so he's praying in front of Joseph and Mary. He grabbed the child and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. This is a quote, probably, or a paraphrase from a lot of different portions of the Old Testament scriptures. There was going to be a light for the heathen swarm like us. Light was going to come into the darkness. He says, it's here. He's here. He's among us. I've been waiting. This is the consolation of Israel. This is the hope. This is the purpose of my life. And now I've come to this place. He is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So I want to talk about hope very briefly. And, <clears throat> and then we're going to move away from here. It is a habit that we have when, for instance, we're going to, if, if you have a friend who isn't a follower of Christ, you want to share the gospel with them, we typically will start in the gospel of John, or some people say, well, I like to start them out in, in Mark, and that's, that's not a bad thing. We, we go through the Romans road with people, that's not necessarily a bad thing that we do. But you know, the context of this entire story is not just something brand new. The context of this entire story really takes us back, at least the start of the context, to the darkest time of the earliest darkness in human history, and that's in Genesis 3, and we're, we're going to go there whether you have a Bible or not. Here's the point before we go to Genesis. Hope has a dark context. In other words, you really have no need of hope unless you know despair. True? What the, the, the light shining in the darkness really doesn't mean as much if it isn't dark, because it's just like one light among many. So the story of the nativity is not the beginning of the story. It started actually in eternity past with the plan of God. But for our purposes, we need to look at when hope entered the human experience. In other words, not that there wasn't hope before Adam and Eve fell, it's just that there was, there was no need for that hope. The plan was in place, but Adam and Eve had all they wanted 
they had each other. They had the delights of that garden of delights. They had the living God and communion with him. I will point out too, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention this later, hope is not based on circumstances. In fact, hope thrives in the darkest of circumstances. It really is a lot like faith because hope is able to see the deliverance that we haven't yet experienced. And that's where Simeon was as we start this story. There's something he knew. He had become an old man and maybe like a lot of people who've, who've longed for something for a long time, they, they finally start to wonder, am I ever going to see this in my lifetime? And yet Simeon had a promise from God. He could see deliverance that he hadn't experienced yet, and he knew that was his life's purpose. And so hope is kind of like faith in that way. It's kind of like faith because genuine hope rests on the trustworthiness of the promises of God. So then, the hope of Christmas, the hope of what we're celebrating in, in this account is not first the scene when baby Jesus was born and placed in a manger and eventually taken by his parents into the temple and escaped to Egypt and the Magi come. All of the things that we see at our, our manger scenes that we set on the shelf. The hope of the Christmas story began in the wake of the first sin when our race first knew despair. Hope was not really understood because there hadn't been any promises given that would deliver from darkness since there was no darkness. <clears throat> it, was, it was at that time that God promised the deliverer. And oddly enough, the first promise of the deliverer was given. So here's the Bible trivia question that I'm actually going to answer, but you can ask your friends. The first promise of Messiah was spoken to whom? Well, it was in the hearing of Adam and Eve, but the words were spoken to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So we go to Genesis chapter 3. This, the context of hope is like, uh, is the story of when it got dark. I will read Genesis 3 beginning at verse 8. Tell you what happened. The serpent went to the woman, knew the promise of God, and, and his first tactic is also uh, is always causing you to think that God's keeping you from something, something good. There's something you can have, and God knows that it would give you pleasure. God knows it would make you look good. God knows that there's there's an experience you can have if only you cross that line. God knows in the day you eat of it, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And so Eve saw that, and, and the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Eve took the fruit, Adam jumped right in with her. He, he didn't even have to be deceived. He walked in in a high-handed way and took that fruit, and our race fell. And we start at verse 8 of Genesis chapter 3. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. For the first time, that wasn't a sweet thing. You know that, don't you, believer? You know that because when, when you are living 
in defiance and rebellion against God, you know what that is, that, that his presence is a threat to you. His presence disturbs you. Adam and Eve were created with a conscience, but the, for the first time their conscience was awakened. And so the text tells us they heard the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, as they had every day since they were created. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? As we've learned, as I've heard over and over, and as I've said over and over in this, in this gathering, when God asks questions... He never does it to gather information. Where are you? Why, why would the living God have to ask that of the one who was created in his image, who was connected to him in fellowship? They had unbroken communion. Adam and Eve had perfect joy in each other. They had perfect joy in the creation. And they had perfect joy in their creator. And now God says, where are you? And you know where they were. They were hiding. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So verse 12 is showing us not only is Adam blaming Eve, he is blaming God for giving him, you gave me this woman. Whereas just the other day, he was saying, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she's going to be called woman because she was taken out of the man and he is so delighted. And now he's saying, you gave me that woman. Now look what happened. Now look what you made me do. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's a serpent's fault. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Here it is. Are you ready? Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her Seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. We return to this verse a lot of times in, in this context because this is first gospel. In 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 seed form, this this is the hope that Simeon was looking for. This is the hope that the people in Isaiah's day were looking for. God says to the serpent. You're going to be an enemy of the woman. In fact, you're going to be the enemy of the seed of the woman. The seed, and if you know biology, seed doesn't come from women. Somehow there was going to be someone coming from the woman who would be an enemy of the devil. In fact, it says the devil would inflict an injury on this person. And depending on what translation you have, you could translate this. He, uh, you will crush his heel. He will crush your head. From there, 
and uh, we could go through countless other texts of Scripture where there is hope, where there is great hope given to the people who were looking for it. From here on out, we have the people wondering, is this the one? Is this the one? In fact, commentators, when, when Adam and Eve uh, first conceived uh, after, after sin entered the world and after they'd been cast out of the garden and, and when that first child was conceived, Eve said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And a lot of uh, Bible scholars have suggested that maybe she thought this is the seed of the woman. Maybe this is the deliverer. And it certainly wasn't that one who was the deliverer. And it wasn't the next one. He died at an early death. And it wasn't Seth. And, and you go right on through the scripture. When is the Redeemer coming? When is the Redeemer coming? And so if you can picture yourself leaving your home for a long period of time, and you, you know, in our in our day, we if we're leaving our homes for a certain period of time, we, we do things. I've learned at my father-in-law's house that when he's been when he's been out of the country for a period of time, he he buttons his house up pretty good, so he messes with the thermostat. And then there are certain switches in the breaker box that are all off. And when we go to stay there, when he's gone, I this the ones with the tape. I've got to turn the well pump on, and we have to turn the appliances on, and and all of these things to get it ready. What happens though if you leave for a period of time and you come back and everything you know? is trashed. Everything you know is gone. That is the context of Isaiah 59. The text that I read to you as we started this morning is Isaiah prophesied before, during, and through this period of time, and the people of Israel were going to be coming back, and they would see not just Jerusalem in a shambles, but they would see the whole system of worship in shambles, and, and they're wondering, what's the problem? What's going on? These cries for justice. And so I'd like us to look, not reading every verse of Isaiah 59 again. You and I really do not understand the sweetness of Christmas without tasting the bitterness of sin and its wages. That is Isaiah 59 in its context. Isaiah 59 starts out actually with, God's response to an accusation. The people are, are in captivity. The people are preparing to come back from captivity. And, and what is it that, that they see? And what is it that they wonder? I wonder if you've ever been at this place where it just seems that either God is not strong enough to do something for you or he is strong enough to do something but he doesn't care enough to intervene, to step in, to intercede, to do something about this mess. And so Isaiah is talking about the mess, prophesying the judgment, prophesying the return. We got this comfort, my people, back in chapter 40, which turns a little bit of a corner in Isaiah. But I want you to start at the beginning of chapter 59 in Isaiah. Again, I'll give you a moment to find it. The word behold is in my Bible at the start of Isaiah 59. 
and he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. But what, is that, what does that mean? That means people were saying, God can't save us. He's not powerful enough to save us, or nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. He doesn't want to listen to us. He doesn't care. Isaiah is saying, yes, he is powerful enough. His arm isn't short. And yes, he cares. His ear hears. There's more to the story that you need. You assume that either he doesn't care or that he's not strong. But is it possible that there's another part of this that, that you're not getting? It's kind of like when, when people who are struggling in their marriage and they say, well, I guess I have two choices. We can either end this and walk away from our vows and find relief that way, or I can just stay in this unpleasant, unhappy marriage till death. Is it possible that there's another alternative? Is it possible that, that there is hope in the middle of that darkness? We assume so often that because we've got it all figured out and, and, and we're, we're really qualified to accuse God of wrongdoing, that God either doesn't care or he's not strong enough. But the Lord through Isaiah turned the attention of the people to the real problem. Verse 2 of Isaiah 59. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Is it possible that... You see protesters and, and thank the Lord that we have a free country and you can protest and pick it all you want. You've got a sign and, and people are holding signs and this, this is what's wrong. If we could just fix this that's up on the sign, this would fix everything. Everything would be settled. Have you ever seen somebody with a sign with an arrow pointing down saying, I figured out what the problem is. It's me. I'm the problem. If we could just fix this one holding the sign, everything would be settled. And so even in, in well-meaning congregations, it's like, boy, if we can just separate ourselves from the bad guys, if we could just cloister ourselves, maybe we could all move to, to South America and we could start our own community or go, go to the mountains uh, in Colorado and we'll just have our own thing. Then we're away from the bad guys and, and it'll be like utopia. But, but you know that's been tried, right? The problem is the sons of Adam go there and it messes everything up. So as the people are accusing God because he won't hear because he's got a short arm, the Lord speaks to them and says, no, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. That's the problem here. That's why your, your city and your system of worship is in a shambles. The problem is you. In fact, he goes on and, and to, into some pretty gory detail here. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Paul draws on some of these themes, by the way, in Romans chapter 3, when he's describing why we need Jesus. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. I actually had a believer come to me one time and say, and talk about so much struggles, so many struggles he was having. And he said, I realize that I spend all my free time planning to sin. That's a scary thought. Which is why through Isaiah, the Lord says, 
devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace and there is no justice in their tracks. So we go to the theme. So the, the, the children's message connecting us to this hope theme. Here we are in the darkness. And this is what Isaiah is describing. Back in chapter 8, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. Okay, this is, this is the theme over and over again in Isaiah. Here we are in the darkness, the people are saying. The people speak. Justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. This is verse 9. Look at this next phrase. I have it underlined. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. That, that's Simeon. It's so dark. It's been dark for so long. When's, when's light going to come back? We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight among those who are vigorous we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears, and we moan sadly like doves. They had mourning doves in Isaiah's day, just like we have now. And there's this mournful song that they sing. Look at this. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation because it's far from us. That's the context. That's why in the jewelry store they use the black velvet and stick the diamond on it and then they shine the light on there because that, that dark backdrop helps you realize how sweet it is to take in what has been set before you as hope. And so the people speak to the Lord, beginning at verse 12. They realize, yes, we're holding up the sign, and the sign doesn't say, God, where are you? God, why aren't you doing something? Are you weak? God, is your arm short? God, why aren't you listening to our prayers? Our prayers are just getting no higher than the ceiling, and, and we're protesting. The people uh, of, uh, who, who were listening to Isaiah finally realized, you know, our sign needs to say this. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord. Is this pretty dark? Turning away from God, speaking oppression and revolt. The people are saying, yes, yes, that's us. And say, Oh, finally they got it. And that fixed everything, didn't it? No, no. Have you ever had a child who was really good? I mean, some children are really good at hiding stuff. But there are some children who are really good at confessing what they did, thinking that maybe there's some kind of an atoning value in going into great detail to tell you, mom or dad, what, what they did. And, and there are people who grew up into adulthood doing that. It's like, boy, if I can really come up with a good confession, we can just make this go away and then I can keep living the way I want. When the people realize, man, we are really bad. We are really bad. But it doesn't fix anything. It's like saying, wow, it is really dark. We are in a cavern. We don't know where there's a light switch. We don't have a smartphone in our pocket with a bright LED light. It is dark. That's what they're saying. Look at verse 14. Justice has turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. 
But look at verse 15. Who can see in the dark? Now the Lord saw. He saw. The Lord saw it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man was astonished. That there was no one to intercede. How are we going to bring light to this darkness? See, 700 B.C., the Lord is speaking through Isaiah and saying, yes, you guys are living in darkness, but there's hope, there's light, there's something coming, there's something more, you, you need this. And Isaiah is going to tell us what they need. By the way, if you've ever read of the armor of the Lord in Ephesians chapter 6, and you assume that Paul came up with that with his own creativity, you've got to understand, Paul read Isaiah 59. This is the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. That's right here in this chapter. But I want you to, to, to follow along while I read this hopeful prophecy. He prophesies judgment on his enemies and he prophesies hope for his people. Verse 19. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the east, from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. This is the flash flood that, that you see. You hear it rumbling and you're in this dry desert and, and suddenly here it comes. He says, that's the way it's going to be. Like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Here it is a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. The redeemer comes to those who turn from their sins to him, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now on and forever. This is hope that's coming once and for all out of the darkness. What do you guys need? A redeemer. Your hope is based on something other than what is happening in your life right now, friend. Your hope is not based on you getting circumstances to turn out the way you want them to turn out. Your hope is not based on your circumstances. The people in Isaiah's day and the people in, in, in the days of Mary and Joseph and around the birth of the Lord Jesus, their hope was not based on circumstances. Your hope is based on something other than what is happening in your life right now. Israel returned from her captivity only to find Jerusalem and the temple in a shambles. Your hope is also based on something other than what you can do for yourself. The message of Isaiah was not, hey, hey guys, just, uh, you know, this will get better. Think positively. The hope, your hope is based on something other than your performance or we would all be in trouble. And your hope is based on a person. If you read closely Isaiah chapter 53, one of the things that was lacking was justice, righteousness. Those two words are often used interchangeably. There's a kind of righteousness that only belongs to God. Yes, there is human righteousness, but it's not enough. And this is what the people lacked. This is why God is saying, there's no one to intercede. There's, there's no justice. There's no righteousness. There's something that needs to happen here. Let me give you the ultimate hope. Your hope is based on a person. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's alien to you. The Lord Jesus came and, and in his life demonstrated a righteousness and in his death demonstrated that he took our sins on himself to impute, to credit to our account his righteousness. And that means, friend, that a human being who is a part of Adam's race, who don't just blame it on Adam and Eve, you voted with them time and time and again, and so have I, that rebels against the living God can have righteousness that God will accept because of what Jesus did. That's the hope of Christmas. That's the hope of the incarnation. And yours is to turn from your sin. To by faith accept the gift that God gives, which is eternal life. And no matter how dark it gets, your hope will be based on a person, not the circumstances. Let's pray. So our Father, we we want to come away from here and come into this celebration of Advent well aware of why Jesus came. Show us hope in the darkness. May we anticipate Christmas, even though there are so many sweet things with family gatherings and, and church events. We so want this celebration to be worship. Bring us to look forward with hope to Jesus ultimately coming again, but, but to the account that we're remembering in this holiday. In your son's name, amen. Sing like never.